Scott, Alyssa, Martin, Nicholas, Aaron, Jamie, Christopher, Luke, Kara, Gina, Joaquin, Elena, Meadow, Helena, Alex, Carmen, Peter. These are the names of the 17 people, 14 students and three faculty members who died in the latest mass shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Every time another mass shooting hits the headlines, <clears throat> we gather as a nation over social media, at memorial services, at vigils, in the halls of Congress and White House, and offer the victims and their families our thoughts and prayers, and then life goes on until the next shooting. We become desensitized. Well, maybe not this time. If the students and family members and friends have their way, they are turning their grief into anger. Just as Jesus did when he realized the enormity of what was happening in the temple. It may seem odd to us when John, in this gospel, talks about the Passover of the Jews, since that was the only Passover around. However, for the early Christians to whom he writes, the great events of Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday are the Christian Passover. But there's no doubt what John thinks it all means. It is Passover time. He has already told us that Jesus is God's Passover lamb. And now he goes to Jerusalem at the time when liberation, freedom, rescue from slavery was being celebrated. Somehow John wants us to understand what Jesus did in the temple is a hint at the new meaning he is giving to Passover. The cleansing of the temple is a delicate euphemism for the only violent act of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. The story was important enough for the early church that all four Gospel writers included it. It reminds us of those other places in the Gospel where people were afraid after seeing Jesus heal someone, where his detractors were afraid to ask him any more questions, and perhaps where some disciples were so offended by Jesus that they quit following him. The cleansing of the temple reminds us that this is no business as usual with Jesus. As an observant Jew, Jesus would have joined the 300,000 people who had crammed into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. At that time, the temple building constituted the essence of Jewish faith in both literal and symbolic ways. In the temple, Jesus encountered people selling animals to the pilgrims who needed them to make their obligatory sacrifices. He met the money changers, too, for worshipers also needed to exchange their Roman currency into Jewish money in order to pay the temple tax and the coinage of the sanctuary shekel. So what was Jesus thinking as he created such chaos in the temple that day? Maybe he objected to any and all commercial activity in the temple, even honest transactions that were necessary for pilgrims to fulfill their religious obligations. Or maybe he detested the exploitation and greed of the religious authorities who controlled all access to ritual purity. 
And maybe he got so angry because the Jewish leaders had become so desensitized to what was happening to their people and had turned their heads. Whatever the case, Jesus didn't stop there. Things got even stranger. Jesus followed his violent act with a perplexing saying. When asked to justify himself, Jesus refused. Instead of any justification or explanation, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Long after the event, his disciples interpreted this dark saying as a prediction of his death and resurrection. What do this violent act and strange explanation mean? Some people see a prophetic prediction of the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. A simpler interpretation focuses on the purification of the temple to its sacred purpose, a place of prayer for all people, without manipulation or exploitation by the religious gatekeepers. A third nuance suggests that it is in Jesus' own body and not in the temple building that we meet God. I suspect that the disciples must have tossed and turned and spent a sleepless night after all that craziness. They must have found it terribly disturbing to witness Jesus unhinged, throwing furniture, shouting at the top of his lungs, and flinging money into the air. Perhaps they ran for cover like the rest of the crowd. Did they look him in the eye the next morning? Or did they shuffle their feet, stare at the ground, and make small talk? Most historians conclude that the execution of Jesus was a consequence of, perhaps among other things, words he spoke criticizing the temple in Jerusalem and its leadership. It appears some sort of demonstration he performed in the temple boundaries was also part of that equation. Regardless of the reasons that Jesus disliked the temple system, he had to have known that temples are powerful things because of the ideas they symbolize. Messing with them is usually dangerous. The theological character of the place lent it incredible significance. The temple figured in discussions among Jesus' neighbors concerning where God is to be found and how God is to be known. This was true even for those who had turned their back on the physical temple. For example, the community that left the Dead Sea Scrolls, a group sharply critical of the Jerusalem temple's leadership, organized to express its expectation that God would provide a new, authentic, pure temple. So when Jesus arrives in town and speaks of the temple's impending destruction, he offends powerful people speaking to convictions deeply rooted in the cultural identities and religious values they affirm. By the time the Gospels were written, the temple actually was in ruins, the climatic casualty of a devastating war between Rome and Jewish revolutionaries about 40 years after Jesus' death. The Gospels therefore attempt to help their earliest readers understand the significance of memories about Jesus' outlook and the temple. <coughs> Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. In John then, Jesus doesn't necessarily call for the destruction of the Jerusalem temple or imply it somehow would deserve its ruin. 
Rather, the author tells us Jesus metaphorically refers to himself as the temple. Where will God be found? How will God be found? In a newly raised temple, Jesus promises in his own resurrected body. Jesus serves as a place where God is accessible. This interpretation would have been good news to the first readers of John's Gospel who had embraced Jesus as God's Messiah and then might otherwise have been unnerved by the Jerusalem temple's recent decimation. God remains within people's reach, just in a different place. We are reminded of John's understanding of Jesus' identity. He is the Word of God that became flesh and lived among us and made God known. I started this sermon with the names of the latest victims of a mass assault at one of our public schools. I didn't bombard you with gruesome statistics of the number of mass shootings of children and adults who have died in recent years. I'm just going to give you one statistic. Right now, Americans own over 300 million guns, roughly one for every citizen. What then does a population that owns 300 million guns have to say about fear? About enslavement to fear? What would it look like in this time and place to lay down our fears so that others might live? To willingly set aside our own interest and get ready for it, our own rights, so that we could prioritize what Jesus called the great commandments to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. During the weeks of Lent, Christians consider what it means to follow Jesus or to walk the way of the cross. The Gospel today portrays Jesus in a public act that confronts religious and government institutions. Rome held the ultimate power. The traditional heading for this Gospel passage, Jesus cleanses the temple, contributes to the perception that the problem which evoked Jesus' fury is the corruption of Jewish rituals and Jewish leaders. But what if Jesus' demonstration at the temple invites us to consider the complex relationships between civil and religious lives? When does Christian faith lead us to challenge civil authority? When do secular laws compromise Christian values? In America, we value the separation of church and state, but in reality, it is not so neatly separated. In her book, An Altar to the World, Barbara Brown Taylor writes that it is not possible to lean into God's love for my body without simultaneously recognizing that God loves all bodies everywhere. The bodies of the hungry children and indentured women along with the bodies of sleek athletes and cigar-smoking tycoons. One of the truer things about bodies, Taylor concludes, is that it is just about impossible to increase the reverence I show mine without also increasing the reverence I show yours. In other words, once I value my own body as God's temple, as a site of God's pleasure, delight, and grace, how can I stand by while other bodies suffer exploitation, poverty, discrimination, and senseless killing? Apparently Jesus could not. 
He interrupted worship for the sake of justice. He moved from compassion to righteous anger to decisive action because he would not stand for the violation of sanctuary. He would not tolerate blocked access to his father's house. He would not stomach any version of unfairness and cruelty towards the most vulnerable and beleaguered people in his society. We don't hear much about anger in mainline churches these days. After all, there's something unseemly about rage, something unsophisticated, something crude. But Jesus, the temple of God, burned with zeal for his Father's house. He didn't use love and forgiveness as solutions. He allowed a holy anger to move him to action on behalf of the helpless and the voiceless. If human bodies are really temples, if these 17 bodies at the high school in Florida are really temples, holy places where heaven and earth meet, then we must work, as Jesus did, to preserve and protect these holy places from every form of irreverence and desecration. We must let go of the comfortable belief that our highest calling as Christians is to be nice. Where, I'm asking myself during this Lenten season, has my power to act, to deepen relationship, or to love fiercely withered? Where has my faith become so abstract, so disembodied, that I no longer find it natural or easy to rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn? Do I truly believe that our bodies, all bodies, are precious temples of God? It's risky to say a quick yes. John Dominic Crossan tells us that the cost involved is steep. Those who live by compassion are often canonized. Those who live by justice are often crucified. It's not an either-or, it's both-and, and we are called to both compassion and justice. Lent is a good time to think about difficult or unpopular decisions we make as we walk the way of the cross. Jesus didn't say, understand me. He said something far more radical. Follow me.